Hi, and welcome back to Ramdas Here and Now. And I'm Raghu Marcus. And uh, we have a talk here that uh, Ramdas gave a long time ago. We've been uh, uh, picking talks that uh, have recently been been digitized, and uh, that whole initiative is going forward, and so we have this uh, wealth of material now to choose from. And by the way, thanks to everyone for your support. Without that support, we couldn't even begin this process, and uh, I'd say we're, we're over halfway done, maybe, something like that. So this talk, uh, now usually I, I, you know, I listen to talks and go through them a little bit and you know and I'm I'm picking up on content and titles and uh you know something that jives with uh whatever I may be going through myself and how it might help me uh which amazingly these talks even after all these years of of knowing Ramdas and hearing so many talks doing this kind of work I am still so amazed to find so much of what uh, still is so very meaningful uh, to me, um, again, after all these years. This talk, though, what grabbed me f- about this talk was, was more about the tone, the presence. Um, it, it, it reminded me of those early days when I first met Ramdas. You know, and I know many people have talked uh, about that, you know, meeting him. There's a there's a wonderful book, by the way, which you can get on ramdas.org in the store called Remarkable Encounters with Ramdas, and it's uh, many people's recollections of their meeting with him and how it affected their lives. It's really pretty good. Um, and another great way to support uh, the uh, foundation. So I... Um, I picked up on this, again, because of the presence, you know, and just the feeling tone. Um, It was very, very deep. And um, as I was listening, and this used to happen to us when we were, you know, just going to these lectures in the early days with Ram Dass and then, you know, meeting him and going to his father's farm and and doing, you know, getting acquainted with the... practices that he had brought back from India, you know, from yoga to chanting and Sufi dancing, and I don't know if he brought that back from India, but (laughs) that was part of the regimen. But there was, you know, a way in which beyond the message of the words, there was a place that we uh, dipped down into that was just a depth that we hadn't really experienced before. Anyhow, so I, I'm sitting here listening to some of this and 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 started to get settled in a way, you know, during the moments that I listened to this uh, that day. I was in the middle of my work day and my mind was, uh, you know, doing its usual thing, trying to, you know, capture and think of all the things that I needed to do like we all do every day and then as I started to listen to this and I'm making notes and all of that about what it's about I started to settle as I said in a deeper way uh, with just uh, the presence I mean he must have been in in that moment and uh, you know like everybody he went through different moments and um, this was really a, a beautiful heart space so I, I hope you enjoy it from that uh, 
from that vantage point. Uh, also, not to say that, uh, you know, there was some really uh, great content in here. And basically, it's it, he's talking here about the stages of the journey that we all are on. And, you know, as we get into it, uh, you know, we, we, we go from our identification with body, identification with psyche, to identification with soul, and then ultimately to the ultimate identification with God or whatever that word means means to you can be you know pure mind can be you know whatever any of the uh, nomenclature that suits you can be um, so uh, and you know I love this one thing that he said um, that that the the what we're really looking for <clears throat> excuse me is it's it's a journey towards simplicity and quietness. I don't know. That that really strikes me now. Maybe it would have struck me less uh, back when, but it really strikes me down. Now, to a kind of joy that's out of time. And it's a journey that leads, leaves behind every model of who we are or who we think we are. And it involves that kind of transformation of our beings. And, you know, I like it. So the simplicity and quietness, I mean, I relate to that, uh, another uh, thought that he had in this, that he said many of us have become so enamored of the super intenseness of the experience. The, you know, the spiritual experiences uh, is what I'm thinking of, that we couldn't imagine anything beyond it. Yet at every point we reached it, was so much beyond everything else. So every time there was another experience that led us to understand, you know, a deeper, uh, to connect with a deeper part of ourselves. And I remember in, in, in my earliest days, you know, discovering Ramdas and then going off to India and, of course, being with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. Um, there was tons of, you know, just outlandish experiences uh, you know, just, you know, I, I could say some of the time I felt like I was on acid. It was that intense of an experience. And I remember getting caught every time in the experience, not wanting it to go away or wanting it to come back. And that went on and on and on until I started to have some grip on on the reality of what he's talking about now, because it's not about experience. It's about returning to a simplicity and quietness and a joy that's out of time. So I just, I love that statement, and it is, uh, I, I can relate to it probably more now than I did uh, at that time when, you know, uh, things were super intense. You know, it was all new. It was fantastic. And uh, and we were sharing it all together. You know, different. Ex- we would share our experiences, our dreams, you know, these uh, just incredible uh, happenings on a day-to-day basis. So, but as I said, um, I was more enamored with this particular talk by its presence and tone. And so to kind of just uh, let it sink in as you as you uh, go through it, uh, uh, it's uh, that there is uh, now I've only uh, 
as I do, I pick a certain part of the talk, and uh, and I as I've done with this, uh, there is a more uh, more to the talk that uh, you will be, and and it includes an official great meditation. Um, in other words, I find the whole thing meditative, but he actually does a meditation that's just absolutely wonderful, a half-hour meditation that is um, the end of the uh, the entire talk. And, and this talk um, is going to be available uh, through our uh, partner uh, uh, um, company. It's uh, called Better Listen. So you can go to betterlisten.com uh, when... and. Uh, you will find this talk, uh, w- which includes the meditation. Um, and they have some other incredible talks by, not just Ramdas, by other people. So I thought this was a good opportunity to turn you on to a great organization where you can um, find all sorts of different downloads from, from different teachers that I think would be helpful for all of us. So here we go, Ramdas, here and now, stages of the journey. Namaste. Welcome to an evening under the breast of the Divine Mother. so graceful to share the journey. We've been on the journey a long time together now. We've gone through a lot of stages. Just as in any journey, some people have dropped along the way, said, well, I think I've gone far enough for this round. Others have been waiting for us to catch up. The journey passes through the seven valleys seven kingdoms, the chakras, planes of consciousness, degrees of faith, Often we only know that we have been at a certain place when we pass beyond it, because when we're in it, we don't have the perspective to know, because we are only being. But as the journey progresses, 
less and less do you need to know. The faith is strong enough so it is sufficient to be. It's a journey towards simplicity. It's a journey towards quietness. It's a journey towards a kind of joy that is not in time. It's a journey out of time. It's a journey leaving behind every model that we have had of who we are. It's a journey that involves the transformation of our beings such that our thinking mind becomes our servant rather than our master. It's a journey that's taken us from primary identification with our body through identification with our psyche ultimately to an identification with our souls and finally to an identification with God. And because many of us have traversed this path without maps, thinking that it was unique to us because of the peculiar way and time in which we were traveling. Although, in truth, every historical moment has been unique in the same way. Often there has been a lot of confusion. Thinking the end was reached when it was merely the first mountain peak that we were looking towards, which hid all of the higher mountains in the distance. For many of us, we got so enamored of the experiences we have had along the way the super, super intense everything. I knew that uh, there's some feedback. Could the sound system be turned down just a bit? During the days of psychedelia, for me, there were experiences that were so intense that I couldn't imagine anything beyond them. But isn't it really a good journey 
that at every stage of the journey you can't imagine anything beyond it? So that every point you reach, <laughs> oh. every point you reach is so much beyond everything you've had up until then. that your perception is full of it. You can't see anything else but the experience itself. To say to a person who is a young person who's just learning to drive, there's going to come a time when driving will merely be a means of getting you from one place to another. Sounds totally absurd. <laughs> Let alone saying to somebody entering puberty, there may come a time when this turns out to be another trip too. Ah. Got you, didn't I? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it's going to be a heavy night, but that's all right. That's... For the first few stages, you really think that you plan the trip, pack the provisions, set out on a trip, and you are the master of your domain. It's only after a few valleys and mountains and quite a way along, that you begin to realize that there are silent guides and that what has seemed random to you and chaotic might have a pattern. And that the game you thought was the game may in fact turn out to merely be the game that you could imagine. It's very hard for a being who is totally attached and identified with her or his intellect to imagine that the universe could be so perfectly designed that every act, every experience, 
is perfectly in lawful harmony within the universe, including all of the paradoxes. It's very hard. Statement, not a leaf turns, but that God is behind it, is just too far out. Too far out to think about. And where along the journey do we begin to recognize that the journey may be stretching out for a longer span than we thought it was going to stretch? See, we come out of our philosophical, materialistic framework in which we are totally identified with our bodies and the material plane of existence. And when you're dead, you're dead, so get it while it's hot. And more is better, and now is best. because you don't know when the curtain will come down and it will all be over. And best not to think about that curtain because it's too frightening. Where along the journey do you begin to suspect that that model of how it is is only another model? And that this lifetime is but another part of a long, long, long journey. In the Buddhist teachings, it describes, gives an example or an, an analogy to indicate how long you've been doing this. The image is that you imagine a mountain one mile by one mile by one mile. A mile long, a mile wide, and a mile high. And every hundred years, a bird flies by the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak, and it runs the scarf over the top of the mountain. In the length of time it would take for the silk scarf to wear away the mountain, that's how long you've been doing this. Round and round and round and round. It puts a different time perspective on this one, doesn't it? Not all of those rounds on this plane, not all of those rounds in human form. But all of those rounds as part of a journey that has direction. 
It's like a huge wheel. You started out in perfect harmony, in oneness. You didn't bother to think about it because you were it. It was all flow. You were like a river. You didn't have to say, I am a river, or I think I'll flow downstream. Your thoughts were like the drops of water at play in the sunlight. And there you were in the harmony of your oneness. And yet individual, but not separate. At which you chose to perform an act which created your separateness. The image most of you are familiar with is the eating of the apple in the Garden of Eden and the going out of the Garden of Eden. It's the moment in which you separate almost joyful because of the experience of your new individual power. And that act starts a sequence of events of your separateness in which you experience increasing excitement and attachment to your separateness to the point where you lose the memory that you were ever part of the one. And you weave through birth after birth caught into your separateness, into your senses, into your thinking mind. And all of your fantasies and anticipations are, if I only had that, it would be perfect. If I can only control pollution, if I can only control paranoia, if I can only feed everybody, if I can only get a cabin in the woods, if I can only get my kids' teeth fixed, if I can only get that new Porsche, if I can only get educated and a good job, if I can only take care of my mother and father, if I can only calm my mind and have a little peace, And each thing we pursue, sometimes for lifetimes. And each time we achieve something, 
like a sexual orgasm, there is a moment when we break out of our separateness and we remember. But because we don't have any model to explain what it is we remember, we come right back into our separateness and we say, far out, I just went out of my mind. That was great. And then as you go through these cycles, it gets so, you get so deep in that when you go out of your mind, you panic. And you say, gee, wow, that's heavy, I don't want that. That's the New York Times article a month and a half ago, Mystic Experiences of the American Public. Two-fifths of the American public have had genuine transcendent experiences, and of those two-fifths, 85% said, I never want to have it again. That's deep in to the attachment to one's separateness. And as these rounds go and go and go, you go deeper into your attachments, more anticipation, and then somewhere along the cycle for each individual, because it is a journey and each individual is on it, starts the despair. The realization that everything you thought was going to do it isn't going to do it. And that there's a yearning in you for something that you can't remember You don't even know that it's your past. You just know that each thing leaves you momentarily with a rush, but not fully fulfilled. And this was the point that Buddha made and Christ made in their each unique way. Christ saying, lay, up, lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in. And Buddha saying, the attachment, the craving, the clinging to anything in time creates suffering. And everything in the physical universe is in time. It's all changing. Time is change. What are you invested in? Your body? It's, it's decaying at this very moment. Even the youngest of you are decaying right now, not just old bald people like me. I mean, you're decaying. Your body's just disintegrating right out from under you. What an investment. I mean, no, no investor worth his salt would suggest you invest in something that's going to decay like that. Can't even amateurize it. I mean, you, you just stuck with it. It's a throwaway. See? It's a plastic cup. Okay. Planned obsolescence. 
must be very frightening to think that's who you are. Wow, a plastic cup. But even a plastic cup doesn't ever go away, but you will go away. And even your precious brain that you think is keeping you afloat, can you see it all being eaten? Did you ever pick up a skull and you look inside, it's empty? Where did all, where did you go? Where did you go? That's who you think you are. That's it, right in there. That's it, that's the one. And time and again, the only moment of despair you've had over and over again is at the moment of death, when suddenly, as it's all sliding away, you said, my God, this wasn't it. But you don't know what else to do, and so you cling, and you go out clinging. I want it, I want to hold on, I want to hold on, and don't worry, you'll get your chance again. As long as you want it, you'll get it. Interesting footnote that if you desire anything, you get it. And the horror is when you start to get everything you desired when you no longer desire it, but you're still getting it. Like this for me. <laughs> this serves me right, see? <laughs> I'm learning not to want anything, I'll tell you. I'm sorry, I don't want, no, no, it's a mistake, forget it, strike it from the mind, I don't want it. See, the delay might be, say, ten lifetimes. Then it gets down to about a few seconds. I mean, when you really get the powers, when you get so that you're creating out of substance, you just think something and it appears. Then you get, the place is so full of stuff at the beginning. I want an elephant, and I want a rhinoceros, and I want a... You just have to walk into your, your room at home, and you'll see, oh boy, what do you see? You'll see all your projections of all your desires all around you. You see how full your universe is with the stuff that your mind keeps creating. Some people have to keep moving out of rooms because they fill them with all this stuff. And they can't bear to part with their old thoughts. So they store them in boxes in garages. <laughs> for later, in case I run out of thoughts later on. Uh, it's like cataloging slides and uh, old tape recordings. Somewhere along that cycle, the realization comes that everything I can think of isn't going to do it. And everything I can experience isn't it. Because your mind thinks of things 
and you and the thing are separate. And there's a little veil. The veil is a, like a trillionth of a second that exists between you and the thing you're thinking of. And when you sense something or collect an experience, there is the distinction between the experience and the experiencer. And that's a very thin veil, but it doesn't matter how thin it is, it's like steel. And it always separates you from where it's happening. And the moment when the despair is deepest, you cry out. You cry inwardly or you cry outwardly, get me out of this. I want to get out. I give up. I don't know. I surrender. And at that moment, the veil separates just a little bit when the despair is genuine enough. I'm not talking about the wanting to want to give up. I'm talking about the wanting to give up. I'm not even talking about the wanting to give up. I'm talking about the giving up. See, most of us say, I don't think my thoughts are going to do there, and I'm now open to new possibilities. That isn't the one. I'll go to Ram Dass's lecture, but I'm going to sit and judge it. Forget it. Because the judge isn't going to change. In fact, the judge has designed the game so that the judge won't change. Because the judge says, anything that doesn't fit in with the way I thought it was, I will reject. I have a category for that as... It's weird, or it's occult, or it's far out, or it's you've got to keep an open mind, or it's whatever you want to call it. It's a way of putting it all somewhere else so it doesn't, doesn't blow my scene up. That's what the judge's function is, so the scene doesn't get blown up. But when, as the third patriarch suggests, you can set aside opinions and set aside judgments because you see they're just digging you deeper into your hole, you can surrender your own knowing. Now that's really hard because the whole culture is based on the idea that we worship the golden calf of the rational mind. And things like other levels of knowing, like what we call intuition, has practically been a dirty word in the culture. It's sort of sloppy. It's not tight, logical, analytic, clean. You don't sit in scientific meetings and say, I intuit that. You say, out of inductive reasoning, I hypothesize that we will be able to disprove the null hypothesis. With the, that's saying the same thing, but you, you may believe 
that you're doing it analytically and logically. Some of you will recognize that game. And when Einstein said, I did not arrive at my understanding of the fundamental laws of the universe through my rational mind, most of his colleagues say, well, he's quite eccentric. <laughs> because the rational mind has been the high priest of the society. And to realize that it's merely a tiny system and that there are meta-systems and meta-meta-systems in which only when you transcend your logical analytical mind can you even enter the gates. I, mean, I remember as a social scientist I studied what was studyable. What was studyable had nothing to do with what was happening to me, but it was what was studyable. The, the, the uh, analogy is the, the drunk looking for the watch under the streetlight. And others come and help him look, and there's no watch under the streetlight. And finally they say, well, exactly where did you lose it? And he said, I lost it up in the alley. But there's a light here. Okay. And the light of the analytic mind was what we were using to try to find what had been lost in the alley. So what is despairing at that point in the evolutionary circuit is the despair with the greatest power that you thought you had, which is your cerebral cortex. See, a long time ago, you were enamored of your prehensile capabilities. The fact that the thumb and the index finger could do it, and nobody else could do that, and that was pretty far out. You got a lot of power. That was nothing like when you could do this kind of anticipatory stuff and remembering and all this stuff with your cerebral cortex. And to think that wasn't the be-all, end-all. After all, it sends people to the moon. Isn't that the penultimate? Doesn't seem to be, does it? Doesn't seem to be, does it? It's interesting that people were burned at the stake for suggesting that the anthropocentric view of the universe wasn't the final view. And yet we all have been caught again and again in embracing the view that the physical universe is the center of it all. When in fact it turns out that the physical universe is but another one. Not even necessarily the most interesting one. Isn't that damaging to our egos?
And the moment when there is that little bit of giving up, whether you're blown out of your rational mind by whatever techniques you have available, or some traumatic experience happens in your life which shakes you out of your mind, or you've just lived long enough, you're an old enough being so that you've despaired of ever getting it the way you thought you were going to get it. Whatever the genesis of it, at that moment, you experience the presence of another set of possibilities of who you are and what it's all about. And it was that perfect, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where the hands of God and man are just touching. It's just at the moment when the despair is greatest, when you reach up, that the grace descends, and you are graced with the experience, or the knowledge, or the insight, or the remembrance, that it all isn't, in fact, the way you thought it was. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.